Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I'd like to run away from you But if I were to leave you I would die I'd like to break the chains you put around me And yet I'll never try No matter what you do you drive me crazy I'd rather be alone Hi, this is Colin. You know, when we talk about taste, well, we have a little bit of a tendency when we're talking about taste in movies or television or music to talk about it mainly in positive terms. As in, my taste in movies runs towards Hugh Grant and anything involving the Navy. But our taste buds come in all kinds of flavors, right? Or they sense all kinds of things, including the stuff that we don't like. And for some people, the stuff that we don't like excites another area of their taste buds, just to torture this analogy a little bit further, in a way that maybe even positive experiences don't. So that's what we're talking about today. Um, The street term is hate-watching. However, our first guest here is going to introduce us to another term for much the same thing. Jonathan Gray is a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author of Dislike-Minded Media Audiences and the Dynamics of Taste. So, Jonathan, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And time to learn a new phrase, engaged dislike and engaged dislikers. So tell us what that phrase means in, in your parlance. Yeah, so my interest there is that, right, we, we all have things that we don't like as we're watching them or listening to them, but it's a casual dislike. We don't feel invested in the dislike. We don't feel we perhaps even need to communicate it to others. But what I was interested in in studying is when are the moments when people really care about telling others that this is something they dislike? And, and therefore, what are they trying to communicate? And I said dislike, not hate, because although colloquially, as you say, we we say hate watching, I might say, oh, I really hate that singer. I use dislike just to kind of distinguish between, you know, I want this person removed from the planet in a violent way versus I just don't like their stuff a lot. (laughs) How universal is this? We were just sort of informally talking to our, our social media audience. A lot of people were saying, life is too short. Why would I voluntarily engage with material that I don't enjoy? I can't even imagine doing that. Um, what pleasure center in my mind would be excited by that? Um, do you have sort of a sense, is this something that we all do, but we're not universally aware of it? Yeah. I mean, one way to look at it is we're all forced to do it, whether we like it or not, in that we're, we're surrounded by media. I mean, unless every time you go into a store that's playing music you don't like, you run outside. <laughs> you know, we're, we're always forced to, you know, hate listen. People we love, and we want to sit down on the couch with them and they're watching something and we value the time with them, but the the thing they're watching might not be something that we like. So even before us choosing to hate watch some things, there are, there are a lot of things that we, we don't even have the choice in the matter. 
But then I think sometimes people, you know, sort of, it's a bit of sort of jujitsu is, you know, if they're dislike the thing so much, maybe I can find joy in it. Maybe I can push back on it. Maybe I can intentionally hate watch or hate listen. I mean, there's also, and we'll talk a bit about this, the, the, the equivalent of not being able to turn away from a flaming car wreck, right? There's a way in which we are drawn moths to that flame. I mean, I remember a period of time, and it's kind of interesting, too, because it's, it's rarely a thoroughly debased-looking enterprise, right? It's, it's an enterprise with some kind of aspirations uh, and, and yeah. something you might have been hopeful about. Uh, there was a period, like Christopher Reeve was a really hot actor, and he made a movie called Monsignor, which was legendarily awful, but awful in a way that people wanted to watch it. They wanted to watch it. They wanted to heat it. I hate so wrong, but you're right. It's the wrong word. They wanted to engage with it in a not entirely pleasurable way, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think sometimes you allude to this. Sometimes like, expectations are key to this and that I, I think some of the things that we dislike most passionately are things that we hoped for or even needed for them to be better. And so it's a, sort of engaging with them through dislike and rather than just turning off can be a, a way of sort of like dwelling on the, the the thing that is is absent that you know we're looking at the screen and we're just seeing what's missing um and sort of like almost paying homage to that which has passed or that which never was allowed to be born in this horrific product <laughs> so you know i think there's also a way that it's a communal experience and a way of fitting in a way of maybe finding buddies and one thing i discovered maybe you did too if you want to if you want to find the communities of hate watchers of various things reddit a site i don't typically go on is a great uh. great place to find that and so i was looking at a bunch of people discussing the movie The Room, which is kind of this famously bad movie that, you know, we're he watching it is kind of a, a big event. But I'm going to read the comment here and have you comment on the comment. Uh, one person said, my group of friends watch bad movies almost weekly. I've met Tommy and Greg. Those are the auteurs behind uh, The Room. I've met Tommy and Greg when they visited for a midnight showing. I've even caught a wicked spiral from the man himself. I think that's Tommy. I agree with your statements 100%. The best so bad it's good movies tend to be more genuine films. We've watched countless films, some bad, some campy, a lot just dull and boring. But our top five would be The Room, Birdemic, Tales of an Ancient Empire, The Wicker Man, the Nicolas Cage version, obviously, and Showgirls, all of which are genuine films. I think this person is making the same distinction, Jonathan, that you and I were. These aren't crap films made by people who have no aspirations or these aren't Roger Corman films. These are films that want to be good. Um, and, and it's just kind of interesting that he describes this, I think it's a he, <laughs> as this thing he and his friends do. It's a thing. It's an activity. Uh, it's an activity they seem to be pursuing almost uh, avidly as an avocation. Maybe you can just react to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so one thing that when, when we study media audiences or we talk about them so often we forget is that media audiences don't just watch, they talk. And particularly when you do things communally, so often it, it's the talk that's key which is why so often people will do these things communally because they just love the kind of talk that it engenders. People who may feel that like Hollywood as a whole has some of the wrong values or is, is going down blind alleys constantly, you know, this guy is, is clearly referring to lots of, you know, he really values authenticity. So it, it probably means he's constantly watching things that he feels are inauthentic, that are just kind of 
Hollywood gloss. And so when you see these things, it, it, it sparks that kind of discussion. So, you know, what, what's tantalizing as a researcher is that you hear the person talking about how they're doing this, but uh, you don't necessarily have access to all the discussion that's coming out of it. But I, I imagine that's, you know, 90% of why it's fun is because, you know, then there's the discussion and the discussion is where you can sort of touch base with your friends or colleagues and realize that, yeah, we all, we all wish that there was this, this other thing going on. And then you, you sort of, it might be relieving too to know that you're not the only one who who sees this the sort of crazy or the the the, the bad in the world that um that they do too. I think there's that. But I wondered if I heard a little bit of and and I, I read a lot of other stuff both on Reddit and, and other places. You know, it's just sort of accounts of hate watchers from hate watchers. I almost thought I glimpsed a little sort of anti-intellectualism and anti-connoisseurship, too. It's kind of like, oh, A.O. Scott says this is a really bad movie? Well, I'm going to go have a lot of fun watching that. I'm going to watch that bad movie five times. Emily Nussbaum's got a Pulitzer Prize in TV criticism. You know what? I'm going to watch that show she hates. <laughs> and there's sort of a sense of, oh, yeah? You think you can set a whole bunch of standards? I mean, I, I, I know that you think there's there's the, the reverse of that. There's snobbery, right? I'm, I'm going to watch this and hate it because I know I'm better than that. But I, I almost sense there's another thing for some of these people. And it's like, you're not going to tell me what's good. I'll decide what I want to watch. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, we're, it, it it's not just that the world is full of media that we don't want to watch. The world is full of, of prescriptions of how we're meant to engage with things. You know, so many of the sort of media objects that come across you know, our everyday lives. It's not just that other people are telling us you have to watch this. It's they're telling us how we have to watch it. And so, as you said, there's something sort of, you know, wonderfully liberatory about engaging with something that might actually be popular uh, or might not, but engaging it in the wrong way. Just sort of, you know, as you say, like throwing up a kind of middle finger to the, you know, the eggheads who, who would have us look for, you know, the beautiful mise-en-scene or, or whatever, and, and we're engaging with it in an entirely different way. And this can be turned into, it has been turned into a small cottage in industry. I'm thinking specifically of MST3K, which is Mystery Science Theater 3000, Rift Tracks, which is one of the subchildren of that. So that's, this is like that, the first thing started as a guy and two robots just watching really bad movies and making fun of them. And I have to say, first of all, I'm an enormous fan. Uh, of mystery, yeah, science no, I, theater. Um, mystery science theater is, is fantastic and, and i mean we should also say that i kind of think reality tv is an entire genre almost works in this vein and that you know the the casting in reality tv is designed to find people who you're just going to throw your hands up at and be reviled by and at and so much of the discussion around reality tv is about the people that annoy us and and how they annoy us and the the bad decisions of the not just of the cast but also of the um of, of the producers themselves so so there as you say there there's quite a lot of industry out there selling this experience of of media yeah i think it was done on an amateur basis and then professionalized just like everything else in the world so um, or, or, i mean it's sci-fi you know yeah. i don't know if they still do but they used to run all these you know hilarious you know like sort of croc nato versus you know <laughs> mega arachnid whatever and they seem to be designed entirely you know tongue firmly in cheek to be objects of disdain 
Yeah, but in some ways, there's sort of a purer, if that's the right word, level of hate watching. And we should say that, first of all, you can't, it's hard to hate watch something that's obscure, because what's the point? Uh, if it's a niche thing, it doesn't get shown very much. But uh, let me just read a couple of uh, two different accounts of people hate watching something that I think is very popular. And maybe I think you're going to say it's partly a response to oversaturation of the product. Okay, it's the same thing. This mm. is from a, a public defenders of Reddit. See, I spent a lot of time on Reddit just for you, Jonathan. Anyone Thanks. else? Yes. Anyone else gets sick pleasure from hate watching Law and Order? I've been taking a principled stand against this show for a long time, but recently when I was visiting my brother, it was on TV, and I just started sniping at how ridiculous it is, and you know what? It was fun, exclamation point. Should I continue this, or is it uh, too dangerous uh, or toxic? Now, completely independent of that, when we asked our Facebook audience, Sally wrote, I hate watch the TV dramas by Dick Wolf. I can't stand his predictable stories. My husband and I got in the habit of who the two of us would be the first to shout, Dick Wolf, when his name comes up at the end of his programs. Uh, when we're watching a particularly good drama with twists and surprising endings, we look at each other uh, at the end and shout, not Dick Wolf. So, I mean, some of this, Jonathan, is the inescapability of Dick Wolf auteurism, right? Absolutely. I mean, when I talked in my research to people who disliked things with passion, the, the one thing that everyone had in common was the thing that they really disliked, they felt that they couldn't get away from. You know, we say intuitively things like, well, just change the channel or just don't watch. But what everyone had in common was they felt like this media object just was hounding them. They couldn't escape it. Either it or discussion of it was everywhere. You know, there's another version of that, I think, and that is hating a particular character who's it's a price of doing business with the with the show, right? So yeah. for example, when the show twenty four was on, a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people, possibly including me, uh, found Jack Bauer's daughter Kim really oh, annoying. Kim, yeah. yeah. Kim and the mountain lion, right? Yeah, so yeah. And and there was like people rooting for the mountain lion, particularly the longer Kim was on the series, the more people thought, bring back the mountain lion. Uh, <laughs> let it have another chance at Kim. But that's sort of a different thing, right? It is. It's I like this thing, but one of my the price I pay for doing business with this thing is I got to deal with Kim or I got to deal with, you know, some other character. There are characters in Smash, uh, for example, <laughs> that people have a hard time with. And that's like, I don't know. I don't know if there's some pleasure. I feel like there is some pleasure in rooting for the mountain lion. Yeah, I mean, there are probably a couple of things going on there. One is, I mean, I think sometimes people are almost embarrassed by how much they like something and, and finding a part of it that they can publicly state that they dislike is a kind of nice way of, of allowing that fandom, even if only to themselves. But I think that the other thing that's that's going on there is is it just shows how much sort of fandom and if we'll call it anti-fandom are re really go hand in hand. I mean, think about this with sports that you you can't love a sports team without detesting some other sports team or another player. It's common to like love your team, but really wish that that one player wasn't in it. And the same thing goes on then with with fictional shows that, you know, it, it, embroiled in our fandoms are often these really inconvenient characters. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, Jonathan, which may set us at swords points with each other or either that or you should just close the door so nobody else in your building hears me say this. I'm in <laughs> Connecticut, but I've for 50 years been a Green Bay Packers fan. You're probably right. Sports is a place where, first of all, hate, as you say, is just priced into sports. You got to if you like the Red Sox, you got to hate the Yankees. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's and sports is a great realm to look at, like 
with all these dislikes, it's fun as a researcher to ask, well, what is what's really being spoken? Like, what it what does this character symbolize? And you know, Rogers is a great example of this that he just symbolizes can symbolize so many things. You know, I mean, <laughs> classically, when it's team based rivalries, sometimes it's city based rivalries. You know, like in the NHL, everyone hates Toronto in Canada because everyone in Canada hates Toronto. Um, so the Maple Leafs are just the beneficiaries, if you will, of of a sort of disdain of of the the big city. Um, but then also, you know, all the antics of of Aaron Rodgers recently with these, you know, dark therapy and his his vaccine that wasn't really a vaccine at all, and so forth. It, it, there are so many ways in which he could symbolize something horrible. Right. In the next segment, we're going to be talking with a reality TV critic about, and I'm going to bring up Richard Hatch. You know, he was one of these people you could really just project. Yeah. He was Satan incarnate for a while, you know, and there's a way that Rogers has kind of turned himself into that. You know, I want to talk also, I want to get your thoughts about, it seems to me certain things are static, and we just talked about one of them, right? A Democrat can become a Republican under certain circumstances. A Catholic can become a Protestant. A Red Sox fan cannot become a Yankees fan and vice versa. Like, it can't be done. It's, it's there in the limbic system somehow. But some of these things feel less static. For example, Emily Nussbaum wrote a piece in which she confessed that she'd raved about the series Smash uh, in the first two or three episodes, and then she'd really started to hate it, and then she'd started to hate watch it. And then we heard this from two different people. I'll read one of them. This is from Kelly. I started hate listening to Joe Rogan and ended up liking the show. He still often annoys me, but about half the time there is an interesting guest who can carry the conversation. If I don't agree with the guest, I've just started to see it as a different perspective rather than hate listening anymore. And it seems to me that that's an interesting point, right? There's capacity for kind of reconfiguring the relationship. Yeah, I mean, when I hear that, I, I also you know, I go back to what I, I said earlier that I think a lot of dislikes are so much about expectation, about hope. And so if we're still strung on by something that we once loved, you know, there's this hope that might keep it alive. Or on the other hand, if, if there's something that, you know, drew us to, you know, uh, hate watch something in the first place, it, it might be because we hoped for something uh, from it. And then we might sort of capitalize on those moments when we actually find it. Um, so, yeah, I, I find that is interesting how um, how love can become hate and vice versa. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by that, right? I mean, think about how many people absolutely hate their exes um, <laughs> or, you know, how many people have this weird like tension with someone that seems so acrimonious and it ends up becoming uh, romantic. Uh, so, you know, the, the same with, with fictional worlds. Right. Some would argue that wrestling with that aesthetic question is, in fact, part of becoming a fully realized aesthetic person. We heard from a friend of ours. He's a jazz musician named Noah Behrman. He teaches in a number of different locations, including Wesleyan University. And he recorded this for us. It's about two minutes long. I want to have you react to it at the end, Jonathan. So, Kat, this is A1. Here's Noah. Something I deal with a lot when teaching jazz history and appreciation type courses is how people react to initially disliking something. And the idea that identifying personally with hating something is completely acceptable and doesn't need to be scrutinized. And that's totally understandable. We all dislike things. But once we identify with hating something, we are closing ourselves off to learning more about it. We're closing ourselves off to acknowledging that we might just not understand it yet or that there's something about it that might be foreign or that it might at least have some validity, even if it is not our personal cup of tea. 
And I find that that's important to keep in mind for a couple reasons. One reason is that it's a slippery slope from feeling that way about a work of art to feeling that way about people or societies or other things, even if we might identify as being open-minded. And the other thing is that we might actually find nourishment in something that's initially foreign if we remain open to it. And I've had that experience a lot on a personal level. It's not just a matter of uh, going through the motions of preaching appreciation. There's music that I truly love. I think of John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, which the first time I heard, I hated it so much that I took the cassette tape and put it in a box and did not open that box again for two years, and even then only because I was essentially being uh, pressured by a peer into checking it out. And now I find it to literally be the most nourishing musical work of art I've ever heard. And uh, I had to learn to disinvest from that sense of hating something, never mind the sense of sort of pride or identity that goes along with hating it. So, Jonathan, there's a lot in there, but some of it is what you just said right before it, which is to hate something in a way you have to already have engaged with it enough to know what it is and care about it. And there might be certain elements that could blossom into love just because you've been so powerfully excited uh, in a negative way by this. But I'd love to know what else you're thinking about what he said. Yeah, I mean, there's, as you said, there's so much in there, and I, I love a lot of it. It points out the the reason, you know, we tend to dislike negativity as a society, but there's a real reason to turn to dislike and to be self-reflexive about it, to really dig into why don't we like this? Because as he alludes to it, it might point to some sort of uglinesses. We might realize that, you know, I think of all the, the Star Wars fans who just happened to not like the addition of the franchise that had people of color in. And, you know, if they dug deep, maybe they'd come to that. But there are all sorts of other things that we we can find. You know, we often are timid about sharing some of our biggest hopes and dreams and political feelings and concerns about society and we invest them into popular culture. We talk about things that matter for us while talking about banal celebrities or shows and so forth. And, and that happens with dislike too, that, that sometimes if we stop and think about, why do I really dislike this? What we might find is that there's something that we've really been sort of wanting to communicate free of um, talking about Aaron Rodgers or free of talking about Smash or whatever the, the text is. And so that's what I find exciting about Dislike is there's this all this exploration to be done. I highly recommend, by the way, this great book by Carl Wilson. It's not an academic book. It's very accessible. It's called Let's Talk About Love. It's in the 33 and a third collection, all about like hit albums. And it's about Celine Dion. And it's Carl Wilson spending the entire book wrestling with why he hates Celine Dion. Um, and it's wonderful because he comes to so many sort of realizations about what music means to him. But Celine's music through his dislike leads him to all these great places. Well, that sounds terrific. Yeah, that's the guy from Slate, right? I think I've heard him talk about stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let me recommend another book, Dislike-Minded Media Audiences and the Dynamics of Taste, by our guest, Jonathan Gray, professor of media and cultural studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go Packers! Jonathan, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. In a way, one of the guests on this show should be the person who's the technical producer of this show, Kat Pastor, who watches like way more reality TV than is probably good for her and sort of... <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes comes out of it, I think it's fair to say you sometimes feel come out of it feeling kind of soiled by the whole experience, but apparently not in a way that, that bothers you that much. Uh, so here to talk about some of that and many other things as well is Brian Moylan, writer, reality TV show recapper and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Housewives, the real story behind The Real Housewives. So Brian, welcome back to our show. Thank you so much for having me, Colin. And I want to start off right away by saying I'm not standing for this reality television slander and (laughs) watching a ton of reality television is quite good for you. In fact, studies have shown it makes us savvier media consumers actually. And um, you should not feel sullied for it. You should enjoy it. If anything, one should feel sullied watching something like football and those Packers, <laughs> their concussion injuries and yeah. such. This is true. This is true. <laughs> a, con- a concussion on Real Housewives here and there, but not as prevalent. And so again, Kat is, <laughs> yes. Kat, Kat is, also, Kat is also disagreeing with me. Although just listening to her talk about it, I feel like it is like a thing where, you know, it's like a drug where you, at a certain point, you really need the harder stuff. You start, you start looking around, <laughs> yes. you start looking around on Netflix for something like, well, okay, what's worse, you know? Well, let's talk about what the term hate watch means to you in the Moylan universe. What does that mean? For the, me, the Moylan it's something verse, the Moylan that verse, that's what we call it. you continue watching, even though you know it's bad, but there's something about its badness and either that it's like so bad or so bad in a different way, or it's supposed to be good and people praise it, but it's actually bad that brings you into the show. And that it, so instead of pleasure from watching the show, which is what we're usually supposed to experience when watching television. We're experiencing displeasure, but it's a fun kind of displeasure. And I also think that for me, at least personally, there needs to be some kind of interaction either with, you know, a partner or a friend that you're watching with the internet where you're talking about the thing. So it's not just like, oh, I hate this and I'm keeping it to myself. It's like, I hate this and I need to make fun of it. And and part of the pleasure is in being able to make fun of it. And we're kind of, I think when we, we talk about that, when I hear you talk about it, it, we're kind of running our thumb down the edge of a knife in the sense that, you know, it's it's a close thing. You and I might both watch, oh, I don't know, the newsroom. And you might say, this is 
so weird and clunky, and Allison Pill is so strange. And but I kind of, I kind of like it. Uh, and I might watch it and think I cannot make it through an entire episode of this thing. Uh, oh my god, I hate watched so much of the newsroom because <laughs> I loathed it so much. But and yeah, and and that's what I find really interesting. You know, I do a lot of reality, especially the housewives. And for any housewife, no matter who she is, there's people who love her and there's people that hate her. And we're all watching the same show and we're seeing the same person. But, you know, sometimes we all react differently to the same things based on all sorts of reasons, I guess. But sometimes there's a more universal reaction to it. I mentioned in passing in the previous uh, conversation, Richard Hatch, who is there at kind of the beginning of reality TV. Yes. <laughs> kind of the way Satan is there at the beginning of Paradise Lost. Uh, yeah. and, and so, And there was this sense when Richard Hatch entered our consciousness that he was – symbolic of maybe everything that was wrong in the world and that Survivor really did take place in kind of these paradisical uh, environments and he he was the thing that contaminated paradise and that it, as long as Richard Hatch reigns supreme in the world, we can never be morally whole. And I mean, there was like a national gut check about this guy. Uh, and maybe you can react a little bit to that kind of person who really almost becomes bigger than the show brand, at least for one season. No, absolutely. And I recently rewatched that season, which, you know, now is 20 years ago. And Richard Hatch didn't really do anything too awful. Um, It was just that he was the only one playing the game and kind of figured the game out. And they were all like, oh, we don't want to play the game. We want to be, you know, we want to create this new society. And Richard Hatch was like, that's not what we're here for. Also, the casual homophobia that he experienced on that show. And I think also in the discourse of him being, you know, hated should not be discounted. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I do think that, you know, I, my personal Richard Hatch is Teresa Giudice, the real housewife of New Jersey who flipped the table. And like, I loathe this woman with the power of a million billion sons. And yet <laughs> I watch every episode and I love talking about how much I hate her, how dumb she is, how horrible she is. And I think that's fun. And I think you get the same kind of thing from a Richard Hatch where they're these kind of villains. And that's what kind of propels you into watching it. And I think that's what's more powerful about reality television in that on Survivor, you have the Richard Hatches who you hate. And then like the Colleen Haskells, you know, from that first season, who is America's sweetheart, everybody loves. So it's like you get the pleasure of liking people and the pleasure of hating people all in the same package, as opposed to the newsroom where it's like you either love to watch it or you hate to watch it. Yeah, and so reality kind of gives you best of both worlds. Yeah, that's a really great point. I would just like to parenthetically observe that another person who was famous for table flipping was Jesus. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> when, he, when he cleanses the temple, he goes in and he flips all the tables. So, um, but yeah, you're right. There's sort of the sweet and salty thing, which is like, you know, it really is the salted caramel, uh, the idea yes. that you you could get somebody that you love enough to maybe come back and see her and somebody that you hate enough. Although, Brian, would it be fair to say that the hate is often the more powerful of those two drugs in this particular context? Oh, I think absolutely. But I do think that you need both, like, because I think there are definitely some shows, especially those with long running casts like The Housewives, 
or shows like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, where if you hate everybody, then it's not fun anymore. Because you're like, why am I watching all of these horrible people? Like, you need some kind of glimmers of hope or someone where you're like, oh, I actually kind of want to be friends with that person to yeah. balance it out. Right. No, if I just wanted to watch, you know, only people I hate, I would watch Tucker Carlson. Um, <laughs> right. So... Exactly. <laughs> so... I think it's also uh, interesting to think about, I mean, well, let me just rephrase it a little bit. So you're really kind of describing an experience that you love, and, and that love contains granular elements of hate, the hate being maybe the sand that makes the pearl, you know, inside this this oyster shell. And I, I think that is radically different. There are people who watch stuff that they they do just hate, right? I mean, well, you just talked about the newsroom, and, and they, yeah. you can get a kind of pleasure from it. There is, if you step back from it, and I, I ran, I did all my research for this show on Reddit, which I never look at the rest of my life. But there was a guy who said, well, you know, when you hate watch, you're probably sort of implicitly giving money or ratings or something to something that you wish didn't exist. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic. See, I love the things that I hate watch. My current ongoing hate watch is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But I do think that you know, to his point, I think that the with every TV show, there's diminished returns, right, as you keep watching it. And I think that the returns diminish exponentially more quicker for hate than they do for pleasure. You know, if you're watching something for pleasure, you're just going to keep watching it and the pleasure will slowly erode. But you'll mostly have pleasure, which with the hate after a while, you're like, OK, why am I still doing this? And and so I think that, you know, eventually you will stop rewarding what you consider bad. It's also, there are, you know, I mean, it's absolutely the case, as you know, that this is some kind of communitarian experience. Even if there's no other body in the room, you're on Twitter, you're somewhere, you're, you know, you're enjoying this experience probably in some way with other people uh, outside yourself. But there's also risks with this. In fact, we just ran a risk. There are three strong-looking young women in the next room who didn't like that Mrs. Measel thing uh, and <laughs> might come in here and start beating on me. That is the risk, right? If you hate watch something that people love, they're not always good sports about that. No, that is absolutely true. But, I mean, I would say to to those people who are upset about it that it is an, it is an objectively bad show. And, <laughs> oh, that, um, that helps so much, know, Brian. Maybe they, should, maybe they should think of a little bit about <laughs> more about what they're watching. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it goes back to, the, like we said, like some people are going to love things, some people are going to hate things. And I think that, you know, and, and I've learned this from talking about Housewives where I said, you know, people love and hate the same women. And I'm always interested in like, oh, why do you love Teresa Giudice, this woman that I hate? Like, what am I missing? You know, and I think that it, it's good to have those conversations and see other points of view and, you know, figure out where you line up with that and how maybe you can triangulate your own feelings about oh, am I hating this for the right reasons or am I hating this for the wrong reasons? Am I justified? Am I not justified? Right. I, I And I think that's a really good conversation, you know, yeah. in, in a pretty safe space. The stakes are, I would argue, relatively low. <laughs> and that's why it's such a good conversation, because you can get as heated as talking about Israel, Palestine or abortion or something like that. But it's about this thing that matters not at all. So right. you can argue, you can 
talk to people and enjoy the thing and enjoy the communal experience if we both watch the show. And yeah, I think if everyone's coming at it from a good place, as opposed to being on Twitter and being like, you should kill yourself, then I those are some of my favorite conversations is talking to people who I disagree with. Right. Well, on the other hand, you did such a lovely job of putting the pin back into the Miss, Mrs. Maisel grenade that they're in there. They're like, you know, pulling legs off chairs so they can come <laughs> in and beat, beat me with them. So, but let me just take that in the opposite direction. And, and you may not want to come with me on this trip, but let's see what happens. So recently, you may have forgotten this. Uh, recently, we had a president who had been on reality television, who had his yes. own reality television show. And I found myself thinking that in a way some of what you and I have just been talking about may have kind of leached in to the to the kind of uber national discourse. I mean, there was, first of all, I mean, he didn't make any bones about it. Omarosa went to the White House. But but beyond yeah. that, beyond that, there was a sense of, unlike the Real Housewives, the, there's sort of two kinds of reality TV, right? The other one's the elimination style, where you get rid of somebody yeah. every week. And that's what he came out of. The you're fired, you're off the island, you're not you're not getting a red rose or whatever they do on the right. show. You know, and there's something very seductive about that anyway, because you can't get rid of people in real life very easily. But I also wonder... You know, I wonder what happened to he really kind of brought that aesthetic and some of those emotions into a place where it didn't ordinarily go. And I wonder if that's a little bit of the bad taste we have in our mouths from those past four years. No, I think that might absolutely be true. And I mean, I am as guilty as anyone of clicking on articles on the New York Times because I hate Donald Trump so much, you know, and I just want to read bad news about Donald Trump. It's almost like hate watching reality where it's like, (laughs) I loathe this thing so much that I somehow derive pleasure from it. But also it's not like reality television in that these a very real world implications. And so, you know, I don't think that that is probably the best tactic for us to take when considering real life political issues. But yeah, I don't know that reality television is responsible for Donald Trump. But I do think, like you were saying, the way that we have been conditioned to watch reality television like this kind of allowed us to let him have scandal after scandal and have that, you know, I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue kind of thing about him that has made him somewhat invincible. Right, and the Secret Service won't let us throw wine on him. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> but I think flip what we're table. Yeah. So, I, I, but I think what we're talking about too is yeah, flip a table. The, the, there's a way in which we were previously describing a safe place to have that discourse. I mean, it as we said, there's low stakes about whether you love or hate that person you keep talking about. Who I don't know who she is, but um, Teresa. Teresa. Oh my God, she flipped the table. <laughs> I know, I know. So if her past completion rate was higher, I'd probably know who she was. So, um, but I think you know, there's a safe place for us to go and do that. And you know, you could probably have, as you say, a conversation about that and say, well, it's what I don't like. But you know, Trump took that and making fun of Marco Rubio. Rubio's hands and, you know, Jeb Bush's yes. low, low energy and stuff. That's all very reality television trash talk stuff. It just was in a place where it might affect the lives of millions of people. And, and so I guess that's the argument, right? The, that's the argument for reality television. It's the right place for a certain kind yes. of hate. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, 
paying off a porn star is a hundred percent reality television, you know, nonsense. And um, though I don't know that I've ever quite seen that storyline before, but it, I mean, something close by and yeah. And so it's fun when it's just these random yahoos on your television, but when it's the leader of the free world, then it makes me feel a little smarmy. I, I feel it's important that we, Brian, that we do uh, full dis- disclosure. Brian and I actually have in development with Netflix uh, a reality show called called That's So Stormy. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, we... I mean, Stormy uh, hosted a homosexual dating show, a gay dating show. <laughs> well, I believe me. The road she's on right now leads to some to you know very 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 promising. If it, she's got good career management, you know. I mean, Monica Lewinsky hosted a reality show for a season back in the early two thousands. I mean, if we can, <laughs> Anthony Scaramucci has been on multiple reality right. shows as Amarosa, and, and going to our point about hate watching, the only Apprentice contestant anyone can name is Amarosa. Right, right, and, uh, and she didn't even win. Right. And there, there may be just as there was with uh, homophobia and Richard Hatch. There may be kind of some uh, other racial subtext there too. There might be a reason, hundred percent, why yes. particularly a black woman in Donald Trump's metaphorical stable uh, <laughs> would be the person you would <laughs> right. remember. Anyway, we have to wrap here because Brian and I have a meeting with some producers about our our, our Stormy Daniels project. But Brian Moylan uh, is a writer, reality TV show recapper, and author of the New York Times bestseller The Housewives: The Real Story behind The Real Housewives. Brian, it's always great to have you. Thanks again for doing this. Thank you so much. Have a good day. It has no presence, no passion, no life. It's neither pastoral nor lyrical. You don't suppose that it's satirical? Hmm? Oh, <laughs> just density without intensity. No life. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 at ctpublic.org slash Colin, which is also where you can sign up for our delightful free fortnightly newsletter, The Newsletter. You can listen to any episode on any podcast app. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. Our technical producer today... As pretty much always, is Cat Pastor. This this is exciting. Uh, this episode was uh, thrillingly produced by one of our interns, Lizzie Van Arnhem. Of course, ably assisted uh, as always by senior producer Lily Tyson. I'm sure producer Jonathan McPants did something too. All right, that's enough. That's enough credit being handed out. Now we have to hand out some credit to our, our final guest here. Alex Myers is uh, a YouTuber who makes cartoons and video essays about movies and TV shows. He has his own YouTube channel. It has well over 3 million subscribers. So Alex, first of all, this stuff is really funny. I mean, it's, it's genuinely funny. And, and it's so funny that it, I think, raises the question of what your true attitude is if you're really making fun of, say, some sacred cow like Harry Potter or some beloved animation like Creepy Coraline. I mean, the purpose of you and this kind of character, this animated character who plays you, is to make us laugh. I don't know. I mean, are these reflections of your true thoughts about the material or is it laugh first, critique later? Yeah, I think, well, anyone who does uh, anything on social media, you know, I think I feel like everyone 
is playing a character, maybe even you right now. Like people kind of <laughs> ham up certain aspects of their personality and they kind of dole down other ones. I mean, you know, every person I like to assume is very Okay, first of all, I, yes, I'm a 32-year-old German woman, but we were not going to say that <laughs> on the show, Alex. I feel very violated. Anyway, continue. Live your life however you want, Colin. Yeah, yeah so so I, obviously I ham it up. I mean, the yeah, I guess the comedy comes first. If you just look at the titles and the thumbnails of my videos, you think like, oh, all this guy does is just hate on everything and he just makes fun of all these movies. And that's true. I do hate everything. But also, <laughs> like, if you actually watch the videos, I am usually always the butt of most of the jokes. Like, I'll talk about, like, in high school, I was a big loser. Or, you know, I never had a girlfriend or I never went to prom. And and so, like, part of the joke is, like, if I'm doing, like, a teen rom-com movie, like a Disney Channel or something, for example, you know, I'll make fun of, like you know the the hot guy or the hot girl or kind of how they interact but the i always kind of try to make it clear that like i'm making fun of them because my high school experience really sucked so like i am always joking about how like of a loser i was and how you know like oh yeah cool nice nice perfect hair mr panty and Provy or whatever so it's like but i'm not actually being malicious it's it's because i'm sort of hamming up how bad of a teenage lifestyle i had uh, but yeah i'd say the comedy comes first because when you boil it down, almost every movie is kind of the same, really. Like there's only, you know, like, every story gets repeated 15 times a year. So like, I, you know, the critiques and the jokes, whatever, like sometimes I do try to critique things like seriously as, you know, like why this story doesn't work or why I think this choice, you know, was weird. Like in the new, you know, Pinocchio remake Disney did last year, like the changes they made, I thought weren't very good, that type of thing. But mainly it's just to make people laugh and to maybe see a scene from a movie in like a different way. But I want to talk a little bit finally here about sort of attitudes towards stuff, because I know that you have some some thoughts about whether there's a right way or a wrong way to watch and uh, watch stuff and think about the stuff that you watch. Right. You know, when when I was contacted to do this interview, they said that this episode is mainly about hate watching. And then it was like, you know, why do we hate watching? What are your thoughts on hate watching? As I'm sure your audience has already heard. And so and when I was thinking about that topic, I thought like the idea of you know, hate watching and why do we do it? I almost think the scope is too small on that question because it's like you can zoom out even further and you can say like, well, is there a wrong way to consume entertainment if that makes it more entertaining for you? You know, like if I'm going to spend, you know, twenty dollars, you know, buying a movie on Amazon or if I'm going to spend sixty dollars buying a video game or whatever it is that it's like. You know, shouldn't I? It, my responsibility as the consumer of the product should be to get the most bang for my buck, right? As in, I should get the most entertainment out of this thing as possible. And so, if it's more fun for someone like me to uh, watch a movie and then kind of make fun of it or to point out things that don't make sense or to whatever, you know, that might be annoying to other people, which is why I just watch movies by myself anyway. But for <laughs> me, that kind of makes it a little more fun. And I'm I'm like actively engaged in the movie. Like nowadays, a lot of people, I don't know, man, like they watch movies and then they're on their phone the whole time too. And they're like barely interacting with anything. And I'm like, what are you doing? Mm. And so for me to like watch a movie and then actively kind of like pay attention and be like, wait, she said this, but then like 20 minutes ago, she said that she would never blah, 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 blah. And so it's like you're actively involved in watching this movie. And for me, that's more fun and I'm more engaged and I actually remember more of the movie. And so, you know, some people might be like, no, you should watch things you like. Like, don't waste your time watching things you hate. But like if watching the thing for the purpose of making fun of it and as some people would say, nitpicking, if that's more fun for me personally than like, 
why not do that, you know? Last question. I mean, uh, I'm watching your YouTube channel and I'm looking at the comments and it seems like you've sort of built up a community of like-minded people. And I don't see a lot of people going, oh, how can you say that? How can you say that about Coraline or whatever? So I don't know. Is it impossible to successfully piss anybody off with the stuff that you do anymore? I mean, does anybody ever get mad? (laughs) You have no idea, Colin. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, to be fair, I think the YouTube, like, the algorithm in which they display the comments probably kind of they probably have an AI or something that finds like really, really negative stuff and kind of buries it a little bit because I get to be fair, not so much anymore. When I first started really taking off and I was making fun of Riverdale and I was making fun of like Pretty Little Liars and Vampire Diaries and shows like that, like people were real mad. Oh man, they were like, yeah, it was basically, it was like, how dare you make fun of this thing that I like? Because for some reason, and and maybe some of your other guests have touched on this, like when it comes to media entertainment, like people will latch their entire personalities onto like their favorite show or movie series or book series. And like, if you criticize the movie, people will feel like you're criticizing them personally somehow, like for liking it. Which maybe some people do that. I would never do that because I like stuff. I like a lot of stuff that people would think is is really lowbrow and dumb. But I'm like, well, but I like it though. So like, I don't really care if people don't like it or whatever. Um, but yeah, not so much anymore. I think, like, I try to be a little bit nuanced in my takes. I mean, like I said earlier, comedy is the the main thing that I do. So of course, I exaggerate things. And I, I might take things out of order or, or I like purposely misinterpret what a character says because I, I think there's like a funny joke if you take what they say a different way. And so that that's the primary focus is just to have a laugh, you know, because like the world kind of sucks. So like, why not laugh when you can? But usually at the end of the videos, for the last like minute or two, I try to kind of be like, OK, so I actually think this is good and this is not so good. And and this part, I actually really like this part, you know, it makes sense. And so having that sort of balance there i think makes people who watch the like actually watch the videos and not just look at the thumbnails if you actually watch a video you're like oh he doesn't just hate it and he's not just making fun of it he's just pointing out things that he thinks are weird but he actually liked it overall or whatever whatever so i try to do that to balance things out but some people yeah some people still send me some people will write entire essays about how my life is a waste and i should be ashamed <laughs> of myself and i'm like and i'm like i'm like sir you're not wrong but you know thanks for writing the essay well alex i find uh, it very very funny well what you do don't make fun of firefly or i'll have to come hurt you but um <laughs> alex myers is a youtuber he has a terrific youtube channel it's called the alex myers channel thanks for doing this today thanks to everybody who listened please Feel free to hate listen to our show. And thanks especially to Lizzie, from whom we expect great things. We'll be back with another show tomorrow. Yes, you know.